I was thinking this morning of when I was registering for seminary classes a while back now. I remember how long, but it's been a while back now. And I saw on the, the registration for one semester, I can't remember which semester it was, I saw you need to register for the synoptic gospels. That was the term that was there. And I don't know how I missed this in all of my growing up. I didn't. Synoptic God, What is that? Is that like the Gnostic Gospels or is that like the, the other apocryphal writings of the early century? What are we going to study in the Synoptic Gospels? And of course, I begin to do my research before the class because I have the disease that I need to know everything about the class before I get into the class. And so I'm doing all of my study. I realize, oh, wait, this is a term that theologians and biblical theologians over the years have termed the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're referred to as the synoptic Gospels. And you hear in that word synoptic, synopsis, or a retelling of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you might notice is that John is not included in the synoptic Gospels. In fact, John's writings are typically treated separately. John's gospel, his letters, and the book of Revelation, often called Johannine literature, um, is studied as an entirely separate class, and in large part because John is so different, so different than the other gospels specifically. It's been said that his gospel more than giving to us a synopsis of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a spiritual gospel. That's actually the language of Eusebius, the church historian. And when he refers to it as a spiritual gospel, he's speaking about the theological foundations, is what John is often looking at when he is speaking about the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's not as focused in quite the way the other gospel writers are, on the events of the Lord Jesus Christ's life in terms of their history and in terms of their unfolding, though he's faithful to its retelling, he's interested in its meaning, in its theological significance. Now we see that in the opening of the Gospel of John very clearly because he opens his Gospel in an entirely different way than any of the other Gospels. And in fact, he goes to where we would not expect him to go, but for those of you who just finished the book of Genesis, which we did last week, I love the book so much that I'm starting in the Gospel of John, and you'll notice that it starts a lot like the book of Genesis. John goes all the way back to the beginning. And he says, for me to be able to tell you about the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to need to know that his life and ministry is a part of a much bigger story. Let's look together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him 
was life. And the life was the light of men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having just read your word in the presence of your people, we now turn our attention to its exposition. We would ask that you would teach us from this, your word, that you would open it up to us so that we would understand its meaning and its significance, that we would be able to trace its teaching to the very foundations of the world, to the very purpose of life, that we would be able to see that the man Christ Jesus is no mere man, but indeed he is the Savior and Lord of all. Come through the power of the Holy Spirit now and enlighten us by this word and speak to our very hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you know, we were down in Mississippi this last week visiting family for Thanksgiving. And as is often the case, as I go back home, as I take a little pass down memory lane, I reminisce, I think, about the good old days. And I was actually with a friend on Friday morning. We were having uh, breakfast together with uh, his family and we were talking about, well, old times. I won't take you down those paths, don't get worried. Uh, just some old times. And we, we ran across this old truck that he has that I was like, I don't recognize this truck. And he said, well, this was Papa's truck, his Papa's truck, who I also called Papa, and who, who taught us how to do finished carpentry and you know, taught me how to build my first end table. And he was one of those men who had um, a word for every occasion. And he had a, a sage aphorism or proverb or some saying that would just roll off of his tongue at just the right moment. I remember him once telling us of a, of a man that he was doing business with and who had done him wrong and his uh, words could not be trusted. And he was speaking to us as young men. He said, boys, I want you to know a man is only as good as his word. That's what he said. A man is only as good as his word. Now, as a young teenager, I actually heard that and I thought, okay, I need better words. I, I, need, <laughs> I need help. I could think of things that I had said that were wrong. I could think of things that I had said that were lies. I could... You know, I'd go back in the catalog of my own mind and I thought, I hope that's not true, that a man is only as good as his word. But something down deep inside of me was actually registering and saying, I kind of know that that's true. Implicitly and intuitively, that man is only as good as his word. That as Jesus would teach us, out of the heart flow the springs of life. Out of the mouth comes what is actually inside of us. As much as we wouldn't like to say it, what it is that we say is in many ways who we actually are. It's what's really going on. It's the, in some ways the real you being revealed in and through words. And in that moment, I thought to myself, I need better words. But actually what I needed 
is to be a better man. Because from a better man would come better words. I didn't just need better words. I needed to be a better man. As John is introducing us to the life and ministry of Jesus, he's actually bringing together those two realities in the closest proximity imaginable, words and man. And he's doing it by introducing us to the man who really is as good as his words. And his words is as good as his as what it means for him to be a man. He's speaking about the one man whose words we can really trust, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at John 1, 1 through 4 this morning, and we consider the word that is God, the word that was with God, the word that is life, those really are the things that we will explore this morning. We're looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, and dwelling among his people, the word becoming flesh, in order that we who are sinners with many fallen words might be saved by this word, the man who is Jesus Christ, God made flesh. I, I want to look at this passage, firstly, uh, under this title, the word that is God. The word that is God. One of the joys of pastoral ministry is the opportunity so often to hear the stories of, of people, to hear testimonies, and to listen to how people understand themselves by their stories, the things that they highlight, the things that they don't say. One of the things that's very fascinating about listening to life stories is how people begin, where they start. And whenever we're sitting down to listen to somebody's life story, a testimony, maybe of someone joining this congregation for the very first time, and they say something like, well, I was born. We think to ourselves, well, we're going to be here a while. This is going to be the longer version of, of this story. We might as well get comfortable. I'd like to suggest that the hearers of the Gospel of John for the very first time probably felt something similar. When they heard John say, in the beginning was the Word. It might have been jarring for the first hearers of the Gospel of John to hear that phrase, in the beginning was the Word, because John is the last of the Gospels that was written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are already in circulation in the first century by the time that John is writing his gospel. And in fact, it's likely that John is writing to complement and to fill in and to go even deeper into the life of Jesus, not in a synoptic or synopsis way, uh, but to go into the profundities, the, the depths of the story. Uh, they would have expected to hear something like, Shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. Um, a census in Bethlehem that Mary and Joseph via donkey need to get there. And then a baby that's born in that moment. And none of that's here in the opening of the Gospel of John. None of the historical aspects with regards to the incarnation or the birth of Jesus, his very first advent. Instead, John says, if we're really going to understand who Jesus is, we've got to start at the beginning. Literally. At the very beginning. 
This word that is with God, this word that was God, is the very word that spoke creation into being. That we, as we might say, have a Jesus sighting in Genesis chapter 1 at the moment that we read, let there be light. And there was light. Now, when I say that there's a Jesus sighting in Genesis chapter 1, I want to be careful not to confuse you too much with regards to what I mean by that. It's a bit of a misnomer. Of course, it wasn't Jesus Christ, the man who was born in the incarnation. He had literally had a birth date at a particular time and space and history. That's not what I mean when I say we see a Jesus sighting in Genesis chapter 1. That's not even what John means. Uh, John means to get underneath the historical reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and to dial the story back to the beginning and say, what is the source of the Savior and Lord? Where does he come from? What's the backstory? How do we understand his significance, his makeup, his person? And he wants us to know that before Jesus ever had a human birthday, and was born in that manger in Bethlehem, he was none other than the eternal Son of God, who had dwelt from all eternity past, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That he was the one who was the spoken word of God that brought about the fullness of everything that we know and come to know as heaven and earth. John is claiming here that Jesus didn't begin in A.D. 1, 2, or 3, but that actually the reality of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has existed for all time and is the source from which all things have been made. John is claiming the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he is no just mere man, now, this passage has become very important in church history to make that very claim. Because over and over in church history, we have seen the deity of Jesus Christ come under attack. That he's just a man in some way, shape, or form, or God-like in this way or that way. But not fully, purely, completely, in every sense of the term, divine. In fact, it would be in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, uh, the first ecumenical council in church history where a, a theologian, very eloquent, named Arius uh, was communicating that Jesus wasn't really fully divine in the sense of the ways that we have come to believe in Orthodox Christianity, but he was, he was more or less the highest of all of the creatures. He was, he was God-like. He was a demigod of some sort, but he wasn't really eternal in every sense that God is eternal. He had a very famous phrase that he would sort of, sort of roll off of his tongue. There was a time when he, that is Jesus, was not. There was a time when he was, when he was not, when he didn't exist. Now, why do I tell you this? Because it has, well, it has incredible import for, for Christmas. Because it was actually in that council, in Council of Nicaea in 325, where Santa Claus defended the deity of Jesus. Does that surprise you? It should, because he wasn't the name Santa Claus, but it was 
Nicholas, Saint Nicholas, as he's come to know, was actually a bishop in 325 AD at that very council of Nicaea. And as the ancient tradition tells us, as Arius was waxing eloquently about his novel ideas about the real person, this highest created being known as Jesus, but not God, it was Nicholas who was agitated, getting stirred even unto anger, and in the midst of the proceedings, got up, marched across the room, and slapped Arius in the face. Now, we cannot vouch whether or not this story is completely true or not, but we do know that St. Nicholas, as he would become to be known, was actually a defender of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and leaned heavily upon John chapter 1. I read a commentary this week that was actually echoing that history a little bit and suggested that maybe at Christmas, instead of giving presents, we should slap a heretic. (laughs) I think that's a hard sell, but... Something to think about, maybe. Uh, The deity of Christ is an incredibly important doctrine. It's something that probably doesn't occupy a lot of our our mind, our thought, or our our attention uh, much of the time. But but if, if Jesus has come to save humanity, and that is what he has come to do, if the incarnation is for the purpose of drawing men and God together in reconciliation then who is the only person who could bear the penalty of that sin? Who could bear the wrath of God? Who could stand and mediate between God and man? Only a person who is actually God. Only a person who stands as both a man, fully representing man, and a man who is God, fully representing God, can bear the full weight and punishment of God and survive and live to intercede between man and God. It would have to be someone who knew God really well, who had known him from all eternity, had the ability to take an infinite punishment and not be obliterated. Only a God-man, only a divine Jesus Christ would do that. If we begin to deny in any way, shape, or form the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually compromise our salvation. We begin to put it under question. The Council of Nicaea sold that. And it said, if we're going to rightfully appreciate the doctrines unfolded for us in Holy Scripture... Then we've got to go back to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and recognize that Jesus who came is the very one who is the very divine, second person of the Trinity, spoken all of the world into being, is also the one who has entered the world. Only he can be a fitting substitute between God and man. The word that was God. But I want you to see also the language of, of John here, and it might seem strange to you. I want you to see the word that is with God. The word that is with God. Now, if you're getting a really close read to this, and and we're trying to do that this morning as we look at these first few verses together, I'd say, why with God? Why the use of that kind of language? And in fact, it's kind of confusing. I mean, well, well, think about it. If, If I were to say, I am Nate Sheridan. And then to say, I am with Nate Sheridan. That's unusual. In fact, some of you would say, he might need an evaluation. Um, we might need to get Nate some help. He's, he seems to be struggling to understand. There's not two of him 
that he's with. How is it that he can say that he was God and he is with God? Well, the problem with the analogy that I just gave you with regards to myself is I'm assuming God is like me. And he's not. (laughs) He's much greater and grander than I am. The biblical doctrine known as the Trinity is in view right here in John chapter 1, 1 through 1 and 2. The the Trinity, the most glorious, mysterious of Christian teachings, the one of the most misunderstood and confusing teachings of the Christian faith, and for good reason. How can God be both three and one? (laughs) How can both of those realities be true at the same time? That God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those three persons of the Godhead, as the theologians like to put it, how can those three be one God? Well, I don't know fully. I don't know completely. I can't absolutely wrap my mind around it, but I can tell you this. The Bible teaches us this very truth, and this very truth gets us into some of the deepest realities of what we know about human existence and life itself and even salvation. If God is both one and three, it means that our God has both an existence within himself, an individuality, a oneness that Deuteronomy 6 speaks to so beautifully in the Old Testament as the people of Israel would recite the Shema, our God is one. And yet, this God who has created the heavens and the earth is actually in community with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at exactly the same time. That in one sense, he is three, three persons in communion with each other. And in another sense, with regards to his being, they are one. They are inseparable. One and three. What theologians and philosophers have actually called the problem of the one and the many. The issue of of whether or not we should be more focused upon personal or upon relational. Whether we should be focused on the common good of everybody or or the, the basic rights of each individual. Well, in the midst of the Trinity, we actually have both of those realities fully on display. God is both one and in perfect unity with himself, and yet he is three. We can say it this way. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. But Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is not Jesus. In some very real way, they are distinct from one another without being separate. They are one with one another, and yet they have different personalities. They have actually different roles. The Father, for instance, planned salvation from the beginning to the end. The Son executed salvation by entering uh, time and space and history and, and dying on the cross and being raised again from the third day. The Holy Spirit coming from the Father and the Son together is dwelling within us today, applying the realities of Jesus to our heart and our lives. They don't all do the same thing, and yet they all do it together. One and distinct. Why is this important? Well, so many things. Why in the context of John 1? 
for us to know that Jesus is fully equipped and adequate to bring us to God because he is with him. John is going to unfold the whole of the story of the gospel. Get into the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. If someone is given the role of mediator, given the role of go-between, to connect parties that are estranged, isn't it important that that party has a pretty good relationship with both of those parties? John is setting us up for the reality to know that this Jesus, who is God, is also with God. He has the ability to reconcile us to God. He is fully equipped, moving towards one another in a beautiful community. That word with in the Greek is actually the word pros. It means to or toward. Uh, meaning to say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not just with one another as in they occupy the same space. But it means that they're moving toward one another. If I can envision it for you this way, it's like two, two lovers that are, that are moving together into a most perfect union and oneness. Almost as if where one begins and the other ends is not always perfectly clear because the oneness is so remarkable. And yet they're distinct, occupying and encircling one another with glorious love. That's the picture that's given to us here. John wants us to know this Jesus who has come in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, who she cradled in her arms. He cradled all of earth in his arms and sustains it, as Paul writes, by the very word of his power. And he wants us to know that he's in perfect communion with God. And thus he has the ability to bring you and I into perfect communion with God as well. The word that is God, the word that is with God. And then I want you to see finally, the word that is life. The word that is life. In verses 3 and 4, notice what he describes is the power and the strength of this word. All things were made through him, John writes. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. All through the Gospel of John, John loves to give us metaphors, pictures, word pictures, in order to display for us the, the meaningfulness and the significance of the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll see next week he uses light. As you see hinted at here at the end of verse 4, he uses light as an imagery to describe for us the ministry and the person of Christ and what he's come to bring. In John 3 and 4, he's going to use the language of water as a way to summarize uh, the, the ministry and the life of Jesus. But notice here in these opening passages, he's, he's actually using something we haven't talked about a lot, but have assumed so far, the word. He's using the word in that way. Now, this Greek word for word is the word logos. It's the Greek word logos. Now, John, of course, wise in the first century, shows his, his abilities theologically throughout his gospel, knows very clearly that the Greeks of his day used the word logos all the time as a way to describe their own philosophical system. 
The Stoics, for instance, saw the logos or the word as that unifying principle that brings together all of life, word. Heraclitus and Plato, even going back earlier, spoke of the logos as the means through which the world was held together and governed. John, as he begins to speak to a, to a, to a Greek hearing audience, knowing the culture of his day, he says, listen, I want you to know you've actually, you're on to something with this word logos. You're right, it is the unifying principle of the world. You're right, there is a source from which everything has come. This logos I've now come to tell you about. This logos is not merely a principle. This logos is not merely a philosophical ideal. This logos is a person. He's a person who's actually entered time and space and history. He actually has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Now notice something about this word. This word that, that speaks, he says here, is a word that doesn't speak just like you and me. Like sometimes what happens to me is I speak and I am not heard. <laughs> you have this issue sometimes? Um, I, I will say things at home, say to my children or to others who may be there in the house, hey, will you do whatever? And they don't do anything, like nothing happens. Maybe you have that trouble sometime with your words, right? That happens with my words as well. I want you to notice something about the word that is God, the word that is with God here. When he speaks, things happen. And not just things. Notice the focus of John in this text. When he speaks, life happens. Things that weren't there are there. Things are accomplished. The word does, his words don't just speak toward realities. His word actually creates the reality itself, actually brings it about. We have very few instances where this is the case in the context of, of, of human life. You know, like when I'm at home speaking or in other contexts speaking and I find these words aren't accomplishing the things I wish that they would accomplish. And then I'm always surprised when they actually do accomplish something. And, and that's really exciting. But there are times in our lives where we mirror in some sense, just in reflective ways, God's own speaking in the creating of life. Think of it when you're at a wedding. When the bride and the groom stand before you, as some of you have been at weddings right here, and this beautiful bride and this nervous groom standing there together and they're rehearsing their vows with each other. And in the moments that they say, I do, what happens? Something is created. Something that wasn't true moments before is now true in the moment that they speak it. Isn't it fascinating that we would import and recognize words to have such significance that by saying particular words in particular contexts with particular witnesses, it actually creates a particular union, a particular life, where this husband and wife become one too, now becoming one, living a new life together, a new institution in that midst is created. It's in the context of covenant. 
in the context of relationship, of giving yourself away to the other, and the other giving themselves away to you. In that context of wholehearted, complete, life-laying down commitment, when we say, I do, something is created before God and before man. Life, in some sense, happens in those moments We are just very faintly displaying what is true of God's word in an even super remarkably higher way than any of the words that we could ever speak. Because not only is an institution in those moments created when we say I do before God and before others in covenant is that God actually brings things that aren't even there into life when the moment he says it. Things that weren't even there begin to be there in the moment that he, that he says it. When John is telling us this one who is able to speak all of human existence into reality by mere divine word or divine fiat, that same word has now come into the world that he has made. He is within, if we can put it this way, his words. He is actually inhabiting an aspect of his word. For he has made you and me in his very image. In fact, you remember the first glimmer of the Trinity in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In the creation of man, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come together and they look at each other in that communion, if I can speak of it in that way, and they say, let us make man in our image. In that beautiful divine oneness and threeness, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit coming together to form the highest of the created order, man and woman, after their own image. Now Jesus, who is that word that was at that council that created the first Adam and Eve, and of which the image of God were all created, he now enters his own image. In the form of human likeness. To do what? To speak another word. Another word of life. Another word of creation. A word of recreation. Because what's happened to the world that he made is that it's become infected by a death-inflicted word. What do I mean? Well, it was the evil one, the serpent, wasn't it? When he came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he first spoke to them, and he did it by questioning God's words. Did God say? Did God say? Are you sure about his words? Are you sure that you can trust his words? Well, let me tell you what I'd say. Let me tell you what I say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here are my words about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you take of it, you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. And it was that deceiving and death-inflicting word that was actually believed by Adam and Eve. And in the moment that they ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, infected all of the human race that comes from them by ordinary generation and all of the human, all of the created order fell in Adam. And the reality is this life-giving word and the creation that was meant to be shalomed, 
meant to be full of peace and well-being, has become a creation that is riddled and shot through with death. I always feel it when we go home for Thanksgiving. Because there are faces and there are people who were once there, who are no longer there. Even in the moments of the joyous celebrations of what God has done in fullness of thanksgiving, I recognize this is not as it should be. Everyone who's supposed to be here is not here. And something within me rises up with sadness and with frustration and a longing and a desire that all things would be made right, that everything would be restored. Jesus has come for just that reality. He's come for just that reality. To step into the midst of this world and to bring life, as he says in John 10, and to bring it abundantly. How does he do that? Well, no surprise. He does it by taking on the worst of all deaths. If we're going to have hope in this world, and if we're going to believe the promises of Jesus, that he's come to give life and life abundantly, you know what we have to be assured of? That he has dealt with the greatest enemy of our soul. And what is the greatest enemy of our soul? Sin and death. And on the cross, the one who spoke all of life into being is the one who submitted himself to the ravages of a God-cursed death. Why did he do that? So that when he broke forth from the grave and the gospel of Jesus Christ could be proclaimed, you who have a death sentence over you because of sin and the mortality now of your flesh could look at him and know his defeat over sin and death and he could say to you, I have put to death death on your behalf. Trust in me. Believe in my word. Trust in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you receive my word, guess what you become? A new creature in Christ Jesus. A new creation is afoot. A new life is pulsating that is stretching as far as the curse is found and will be full and complete in the day in which Jesus returns to make us fully his, his beautiful bride and he our glorious groom. That's what he's come to do. When we enter into Advent in the preparation for the Christmas season, we are remembering that the man Christ Jesus is as good as his word. He's as good as his word. And that he has spoken to us as the divine word that can totally and completely be trusted. And he has spoken as one who is with God that can take us to God. And the word that he has spoken is a word of life. Why? Because he has defeated death. There is no way to talk about Christmas without letting a little Easter break in. As we begin to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, know that that babe in a manger is the same one that broke forth from the grave and is the same one who today stands 
to intercede for you and me and is coming back again to give you life of the likes of which you have yet to even begin to imagine. Trust in the words of Jesus. For this man is as good as his word. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would confirm these truths to us even now. That you would open up our hearts to be receptive to the word of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that our love for Christ and our knowledge and understanding of him would increase through this Advent season. Bless us in that way and glorify yourself through us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.